Hey, Radio 3. This is Radio 3. Let's now join Andy Maria Evans for more Hong Kong Heritage. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where writer and China analyst Mark O'Neill talks about the Irish Jesuit priests who came to Hong Kong in 1926 and four key men among them who served Hong Kong. The Jesuits put great emphasis on education and would take over the prestigious Wayang colleges in both Hong Kong and Kowloon. The Catholic order also cares about the grassroots communities. We'll be hearing about Father Patrick Joy, who helped found the Hong Kong Housing Society in 1938. Father Thomas Ryan, who became the Minister for Agriculture here and who reforested Hong Kong after the Second World War. Father Patrick McGovern, who pushed for workers' rights and trades unions in the 60s and 70s, and would come to Legco on a Vespa scooter. And Joseph Mallon. Who dedicated his life to educating students, and who died recently at the age of 104? Joseph Mallon was a son of one of the executed leaders of the 1916 Easter Rising. Today we are speaking about the Irish Jesuits in Hong Kong and their contribution to Hong Kong society. They arrived in December 1926, and since then 106 of them have come to Hong Kong. And they have made great contributions to Hong Kong, especially in education, in health, social welfare, credit unions, workers' rights, helping refugees, helping the poor, helping the homeless, across a very wide sector of societies they've helped. So let's start in the beginning. They came in December 1926 because the Bishop of Hong Kong at that time wanted a Catholic hostel for Hong Kong University. It had just opened. And it's a hostel-based institution, and the bishop was afraid that the Catholic students that went to Hong Kong University would lose their religion because they didn't have an ambiance suitable for their faith. So the Irish Jesuits agreed to send people, and they set up Ritchie Hall, which opened in December 1929, and it's alive and well today. It's still a hostel for Catholic students at Hong Kong University. And it's also a place where some retired Jesuits live. So that was the first major project they did here. The second one was 1931. They took over a seminary overlooking Aberdeen to train priests. So it wouldn't just be priests for Hong Kong, but also priests for southern China. Then in 1932, they were invited to take over management of Huayan College. Now this was set up in 1919 by a Hong Kong man called Peter Tsui. And he was a very devout Catholic, and it was a big school. It was the largest Chinese secondary school at the time, and he thought that the Jesuits would run it better than him. So he invited them to take over, and they were very pleased to do this. So we have the Waiyan in Hong Kong, and in 1946 we have the Waiyan in in Kowloon, and. These two schools have been among the best secondary schools in Hong Kong ever since they were founded. They teach in English, and they've produced many of the finest people in Hong Kong, in medicine, in law, in accounting, in government, in business, in many different fields. And at the moment, there are no priests teaching in either of them, but the supervisor of both schools is the Jesuit provincial. Who is the chief Jesuit priest here? Who is a Hong Kong Jesuit? 
So although there are no priests teaching there, it's, they still remain Jesuit institutions and they have ch church services there. And the ethos of the Jesuits in the 1930s is still what governs the two schools. Now, the Jesuits, anyway, generally, there's a huge emphasis on education. Yeah, I've met quite a few Jesuits in my life, and I find exactly as they say, they're very educated. They usually speak several languages. They've studied a long time before they become finally Jesuits, and they have a very wide range of skills. And this is what impressed me most when I was researching this, that while many of them were teachers in the two YN schools, they were the, the main thing they did. Because they have these different skills, the provincial allows them to practice their skill in different sectors, which is why we have many involved in social welfare, uh, trade union operations, in different sectors of life where you don't find other religious people. But Jesuits have that ability. Now, when they come here in 1926 and into the 1930s, uh, were they dealing also with uh, acute poverty here in Hong Kong? Yes. Well, the Jesuits are very socially aware. They're very, if I can say, political with a small p. I mean, they're very aware of what's going on in the society around them. Even in the 1930s, the Jesuits become interested in the housing problem. 1938, one of the Jesuits called Father Thomas Ryan, he helps to set up the Hong Kong Housing Association together with the Anglican Bishop. And that is the start of the low-cost housing project in Hong Kong. We then have, during the war years, we have many refugees come from mainland to Hong Kong, and the Jesuits are very active in assisting them, providing them with aid, and getting the YN students to do it too, collecting money through the YN school to aid these refugees. So again, they're very aware of this and they feel they must act to help them. Now today also you're going to talk about four individuals who were Jesuit priests in Hong Kong. Yes, I mean there's 106 people to talk about. All their stories are interesting, but I thought to give our listeners a better idea of them, we'll look at four of them in particular. So let's start with Father Patrick Joy. Now, he arrived here in 1927, and he was initially the editor of the Catholic newspaper. He was also a professor of moral theology. But his key mission came during the war. In 1941, the Japanese took over Hong Kong, and there are 300 Irish people in Hong Kong at the time. So the Japanese said to them, who are you? Are you Irish or are you British? Because you know, the, the question is quite complicated for Irish people, especially those from the north of Ireland, because the Northern Ireland belongs to Britain. So of the 300, 180 said we're British. So that means they were all sent to the Stanley internment camp. And the others, who includes all the Jesuits and all the nuns, they said, no, we're Irish. So they were not sent to the internment camp. But they had to agree not to do anything against Japanese rule. Because Ireland, other than, as you say, British Northern Ireland, was neutral during the war. Oh yes, Ireland was neutral in the war, like Portugal. But as it turns out, the ones that decided to go to, to, to be British were wiser. Because although life in Stanley was very difficult, there was a minimum supply of food. And you were left alone by the Japanese because you were already interned. But all the Western civilians who were not interned were subject to surveillance by the Japanese secret police 
and they suspected you or anything, if you had a meeting, if you went somewhere, if you sent a letter, this was all suspect. What, what were you doing? What was your motive here? So the life was extremely difficult for, well, not only the Irish people, but all the other people who were not in internment. And especially the last 18 months of the war, because the food shortages here became very, very severe. Many people starved to death. And the Jesuits were very lucky because the Irish Red Cross and the Irish government provided funds, regular funds, for them and for the other Irish people with which they could buy food. So that probably saved them from starvation. Now, Father Joy was the head of the Irish community during the war. So he was involved in many activities, trying to look after his community. He went to Macau, and the governor there asked him to set up a school. So they set up a, a Jesuit school in Macau, where uh, some of the Jesuit teachers and many of the students from Warren studied during the war. And that was a very uh, positive contribution. So those children were able to continue their, their education during the war. But in May 1943, Father Joy and another priest were arrested, along with an, a Canadian Irishman. And the two priests were detained for 11 weeks. Now, they were not tortured. And this is probably because of the lobbying of the Irish government, because the Irish government, being neutral, was able to say to the Japanese government, what have these two priests done? What have they been charged with? They gave them some pressure, which would not be the case, of course, if they'd been from an enemy country. So they were interrogated. It was psychologically very traumatic for them. Father Joy said you had to be very careful anything you said, any mention of somebody, any mention of what somebody had done could result in that person being arrested and potentially being killed. But there was another priest, a Jesuit, who had not been arrested, who lobbied on their behalf. And he succeeded in being allowed to come into the prison and give them Holy Communion for two months, which is really astonishing. And one of his main arguments was, if you don't treat them well, Irish public opinion will turn against Japan and Ireland will join the Allies. I mean, this is not true at all. But in the context of the time, that was a powerful argument to make and the Japanese commanders became a bit nervous. So that was probably why they treated them slightly better. So after 11 weeks, uh, the two priests were liberated. But the third man was not liberated. He was tortured and he was executed along with the other many other people. And Father Joy in his letters describes listening to the sound of the people being tortured. The, the prison was quite small, so you could hear a lot. So for him, it was an extremely traumatic event, and it was only after the end of the war that he was able to recover himself. So what was the name of the poor man who was tortured and killed? Uh, his name is Thomas Monaghan, and he was a Canadian but of Irish origin. So, you know, when the Japanese occupied Hong Kong, he again had to make a decision. Am I a Canadian person, which means he's an enemy person, or am I an Irish person? So he decided to be an Irish person. So this is Father Patrick Joy. So your next one is Father Thomas Ryan. Yes, now he is also an extraordinary person. He arrived in 1932, and for his whole life he only slept four hours a day. So he was a workaholic. And so he was involved in all sorts of activities. So he was the one who set up the Hong Kong Housing Society in 1938, which aimed to assist the lowest class in Hong Kong. He assisted the refugees that came from Guangdong. 
And after the Japanese occupied uh, Hong Kong, he escaped to Guilin and Chongqing, and he carried on the refugee work. And in Chongqing, he caught the attention of the man who became the colonial secretary of Hong Kong after the war. And the colonial secretary said, you're a very able person. Would you become the secretary of agriculture after the war? Now, this is the only case in the whole history of the British Empire that an Irish Jesuit priest became a high government official. Now, Father Ryan had no expertise in agriculture, but he was a very good organizer, extremely efficient, extremely hardworking. So he took on this project. And this project meant many of the forests of Hong Kong had been cut down in the war because people needed to have fuel. The whole city was completely run down. So he had to reforest the mountains, and he also had to replant all the urban areas. So he set up nurseries everywhere. He went to Australia to buy huge amounts of seedlings. He recruited a very large number of people to help him. And he succeeded in this project. He reforested Hong Kong after the war. Now, of course, this isn't really what a Jesuit should be doing. So once the project had taken off and things were working well, he, he stepped down. There's certain times in Hong Kong's history where really the hillsides are bare, and this was one of them, where people had used the firewood during the war. So it must have taken several years to reforest, although in, I suppose in Hong Kong it would grow quite fast. Yeah, well, I think exactly right. I think the post-war is a very exceptional period. There is a shortage of experts. Many people have died in the war. I think you can do things much more quickly than you could in normal times. I imagine the bureaucracy, the procedures were much simplified. And uh, he had the strong backing of the government to do this. So Father Thomas Ryan stepped down from his position as Secretary of Agriculture. And then he went back to more traditional activities. He helped to set up the social welfare department for the government. He became extremely active in helping the poor. The government had all sorts of committees dealing with the poor, and he sat on all of them and was extremely active. He also planned the two new buildings for the YN colleges, one in Hong Kong and one in Kowloon. So he kept up this enormous pace of work. And then, unfortunately, toward the end of his life, physically, he, he wasn't able to do it anymore, and he was forced to slow down. But many believe that he was the single Jesuit who did more for Hong Kong as a whole than any other single individual. Yeah. So that was Father Thomas Ryan, who spent his life. How did you manage to do that just with four hours sleep per night? I can't do that. I'm talking with Mark O'Neill, obviously a regular contributor to Hong Kong Heritage, and we're talking about some of the Jesuits. And of course, the Jesuits have made a huge contribution to Hong Kong. They came here in 1926. So we've got the next one up is Father Patrick McGovern. Now, Patrick McGovern's interest was in working people. So Again, I'm very impressed by the fact that his superior was willing to give him the leeway to do this. So he and a group of workers set up the Industrial Relations Institution in 1968, and the aim was to train workers to participate in free, strong, responsible trade unions. And as you know, at that time, the, the balance of power was very much in favor of employers. The government favoured them, the law favoured them. But he felt that the law had to be changed and the balance should be shifted toward the workers. So he was the director of this institution for a few years, but his aim was to hand it over to a local person, which is what happened. And then in August 1976, the governor appointed him as a member of LegCo, and he became a spokesman for the workers' 
interests in labor law and industrial relations. And he was the first religious person to be appointed to LegCo. And he arrived for meetings on a Vespa motorcycle. Everyone, <laughs> everyone else arrived in their big black cars with drivers, but he arrived on a Vespa motorcycle. I think you can imagine he was very much out of place because who are the other members of LegCo? They're senior civil servants. They're well-off, wealthy, well-placed people. Whereas he is a different kind of person. He's not British. He's not Chinese. And his job is to represent the, the working classes of Hong Kong. So I think initially it was quite difficult for him. But he was a very uh, humorous person. He was very likable. So I think the initial hostility that he encountered was overcome by the fact that he was a very amiable person to deal with and he won them over. Now, as you described, the Jesuits are political with a small p. So, I mean, how was this? Was this welcomed, this whole idea of, you know, unionising the workers? Uh, no, I think it was not. It was not welcomed. But, I mean, since Hong Kong's a British colony, the trade union movement in Britain is very strong. So I think someone like Father McGovern can always refer to trade union legislation in Britain or in other countries in Europe as a, as a reference point. And by the 70s, the Hong Kong economy is doing very well. Hong Kong's become a major manufacturing center in the world. So the conditions in the factories have changed. The employers have much more money, and they're much better able to give more equitable conditions to their workers. So whilst not welcome and not particularly popular, I think it was possible by the 70s. In the 50s and the 60s, I think not possible. And when he was, uh, you know, setting up these trade unions, this was about securing better working rights in terms of length of working hours, or was it, you know, ensuring health and safety? Certainly, I mean, minimum wage comes in much later. Yes, I think initially it would be working conditions, uh, sanitary conditions, environmental conditions, uh, length of working hours, payment of overtime, the participation of workers in, in the company. I mean, yeah, it was an uphill struggle. But again, what impresses me is here's an Irish man, a Jesuit, you know, from across the world, and he's come here and he sees it as his mission to help the people at the bottom of Hong Kong society and he should help them. Do you think the Vespa motorcycle helped with his level of coolness? Yeah, well, he, he was obviously an um, unusual, unorthodox person. He was different to the others, so, well, why not arrive on a motorcycle? In any case, if he'd arrived in a Mercedes with a driver, what would his fellow members of the Industrial Relations Institution <laughs> said to him? So he had to be true to his class, too. Yes. So we've been hearing about Father Patrick Joy, his work in education and during the war. Father Thomas Ryan, the man who reforested or help to reforest Hong Kong, and Father Patrick McGovern, the unionist on a Vespa motorbike. So who's our fourth man? Well, this is Father Joseph Malin, who died on Easter Sunday, 2018. He was aged 104. He was the oldest Irish priest in the world at the time. He was born in 1913 in Dublin, and his father was one of the commanders of the Easter Rising in 1916. So what was the Easter Rising? Well, this was 1916, Easter Sunday. Britain was involved in this horrific war with Germany, Austria and Turkey. And these Irish revolutionaries believed this was the moment that they had to rise up. England's weakness is our opportunity. So 
starting in the general post office in central Dublin, they launched this rebellion. Now, the rebellion was certain to fail because, of course, the British army was far better armed than them. There were British garrisons in Ireland. The, the British army was able to send reinforcements from England. So it was doomed to fail, but those who took part in it knew it would fail. But they wanted to be like martyrs. They knew they were going to die. But their aim was to inspire the rest of the Irish people to dream about an independent state and get rid of British rule. So Joseph Malin's father was one of these people. So the rebellion didn't last very long. The British army defeated the rebels and executed the leaders, including his father. So Joseph Malin became a Jesuit and he arrived in Hong Kong in, in 1948. And he was sent initially to Guangzhou, where there was a Jesuit mission. But in '49, of course, he had to come back and, he, and everyone moved back here. So since then, he, he lived and worked in Hong Kong. He was mainly a teacher at YN colleges and also at a primary school, which feeds into YN. And he was also a parish priest. And he was a person who didn't have such... Um, public life as the Jesuits we've described, but he was deeply loved by all his students and all the people who came in touch with him, and he had an astonishing memory. So even in his 80s and his 90s, he could remember the names of all the students he had taught and what had happened to them, who they'd married and how many children they had. I mean, we're all expecting to lose <laughs> our memory <laughs> as our years go on, but he didn't. He, he, he kept it. I think he saw his mission was, I devote my life to my students. That's what I'm here for. But he did it in a, in a quiet way. He didn't speak much about himself. He was modest. He was an excellent speaker of Gaelic. He didn't expect to be sent here because when he came to adulthood, Ireland had just become independent and the promotion of the Gaelic language was a, a major project of the new government. And one might have expected that they would have used him uh, as a teacher of Gaelic in Ireland, but no, it was decided he would come here. And he carried on working until 2013. He didn't retire till he was 100. Retiring at 100. Um, I think he should be allowed at least a few years of retirement at that point. Now, something I haven't asked you, of course, I mean, the Jesuits go back hundreds of years, but what is a Jesuit priest? I mean, where does that start from? Well, there are many orders in the Catholic Church, and the Jesuits are one of them, and they were founded by St. Ignatius Loyola, and I think it's the 16th century. And he had his own particular philosophy, his own particular understanding theology, and the first missionary to China was a Jesuit, Francis Xavier, and he got as far as Guangdong province, and then he passed away. He's buried there in an island of Guangdong province. So I think the Jesuits always had an eye toward China. The evangelization of China has always been one of their ambitions. I'm really not qualified to speak about the theology of St. Ignatius Loyola, but from what I've seen, I think we can say is that they're extremely well-educated, extremely devout, and they have many skills. So they're very active in all sectors of society, which is why in some countries the Jesuits are very unpopular, because like in South America, 
you have Jesuits who are working with the established church, but then you have Jesuits who are working with indigenous people or with working people, and of course they run afoul of the establishment and the established church. So that's part of their character. So you've met, as you say, in more recent years, a a number of Jesuit priests. I I also have had one or two on Mm -hmm. Hong Kong heritage. Now, one of the things that you said was that they were multilingual, the Irish priests who were coming out, which I also find interesting is that they would arrive here. I mean, I've come across this before with, you know, particularly missionaries who would all be speaking Mandarin and then are in Hong Kong, so they have to switch over and then learn Cantonese. But you've got these Irish priests, but what they were very keen on from 1926 onwards is to ensure that it wasn't just an Irish order in Hong Kong. Yeah, well, the first thing to say is you're quite right, that they arrive here and the first thing they have to do is Cantonese. So usually it's two years intensive Cantonese study, either here or in Guangzhou before 1949. Now, we can't say that all of them were fluent in Cantonese because, for example, Father Ryan, when he came, he was older. And the problem is, when you arrive, your superior may give you duties to do, like editing a magazine or running a seminary. So you don't have the time that you need to to become fluent in Cantonese. But Certainly the younger ones, yes, they would spend two years on that. So I think the ones that became teachers and devoted themselves to the life of ordinary Hong Kongers, yes, they became very good in Cantonese, and this is critical to their success. Another thing they want to do is the Jesuits, of course, are not an Irish order. They're not a Spanish order. They're a global order. So from the beginning, they wanted to train up Chinese Jesuits. Now, of course, this is not an easy matter because, first of all, you have to convert people. Uh, Then you have to persuade the parents of that particular individual that they should become a priest. And as you know, well, not only Chinese, but many people in the world, they don't wish their sons to join a celibate order, which means they can't marry, which means they'll have no grandchildren, they'll have no grandsons to inherit the name. And becoming a Jesuit means a long period of study, some of it in Hong Kong, but some of it elsewhere. It's very grueling. So it's not at all an easy matter to train anybody to become Jesuits. Anyway, over the course of time, yes, the Chinese from Hong Kong or southern China joined the order and became Jesuits. And one of them you've probably heard of is called Dominic Tang. Now, he was the first Yen student to become Jesuit, and he was the bishop of, of Guangzhou, 1951. So he was arrested by the new government, I think 22 years in prison, seven years in solitary confinement. And he finally came out 1981. He came back to Hong Kong 1981. The Irish Jesuits here encouraged the Chinese Jesuits to advance and to understand that they would replace them. So 1985 is the time when the the first Chinese provincial is appointed. So that means he's the head Jesuit in Hong Kong. And he describes this moment. He's appointed, and the tradition is when he's appointed, all the other Jesuits come and kneel in front of him and kiss his ring. So here's this Chinese Jesuit who's you know middle-aged, and these much older Irish priests come, whom he's known before and may have been his teachers before, they come and they bow in front of him and they kiss his ring. And he said he was very impressed that they were prepared to do that. And 
that they had a mentality which enabled them to do this and to encourage Chinese to take over. And the current provincial today, he's also a Hong Kong Chinese. But I have to mention another factor, of course, which is that at home, the number of people willing to become Jesuits as willing to become priests of all sorts had dramatically fallen. So this is a matter of great sadness to the Irish Jesuits here. That So we have 106 between 1926 and today. But the number of young recruits in Ireland was very few. So now the three who are still here are all over 80. One of them's 93. And uh, it's a great difficulty to recruit Irish priests as Jesuits, but also Chinese priests as Jesuits also. But in terms of localization, passing the baton to the Chinese, the Jesuits did well and did it before a lot of other institutions here. My thanks to Mark O'Neill, talking there on the Jesuits of Hong Kong. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>